Okay, all right. You guys can hear me because I can hear me. Good. It's great to see you guys. Praise the Lord. That was wonderful worship. Wonderful. I'll tell you what, right now, um, I feel as if I can preach without my notes, which would be a huge accomplishment. I'm just so excited and I'm so blessed to be here with you guys that I'm so encouraged by what the Lord is doing in our church. I just feel like I have God's Word just overflowing in my heart right now. I'm just so overjoyed. I'm so blessed. I can't believe the faithfulness. I can't believe just the servanthood and, and just how God has brought everything together. It's, it's magnificent. It's marvelous to behold, and I'm so encouraged by it. Um, I want you to turn with me uh, to 2 Corinthians as we continue going now through uh, our exposition of the book of 2 Corinthians We are going to look at uh, verses 3 to 5 today, but I want to do something for us as we consider this passage. I want us to consider the context, because really, this whole passage goes all the way through to verse 11. So today, what I thought we would do is we would read all the way down uh, to verse 11, but we'll look at or we'll uh, we'll study tonight or today uh, verses 3 to 5. Okay, let's read together. Uh, verses 3 through 11. This is what the Word of God says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same comfort or the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are shares of our sufferings, so also you are shares of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. You also, joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf, on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let's pray and we'll begin. Well, Father, uh, today we are so grateful to be in Your Word. We're so thankful, God, that we can follow the authorial intent of the Scriptures, something that so many churches have gotten away from. And Father, all the riches and the blessings and all of the unfathomable treasure of Christ is right here. It's right here on the page. It's in the text. It's in the Word. It's in the exposition. It is in what the Apostle Paul wanted and intended to say. And Father, our burden today is to understand what it is that Paul meant by what he said And so as we exegete Your Word, may it correct us. May it instruct us. May it teach us, Lord. May it conform us more and more to Your will, more and more into the image of Your Son, Jesus. And Father, I know that we live in a world that is filled with pain, chaos, a world that is filled with suffering, a world that is filled with dysfunction, with, Lord, abuse, a world that is filled with the effects of sin. Lord, we live in a world where death is reigning, where the outer man is experiencing decay on a daily basis. But Lord, we thank, we thank You so much for the comfort that we have in Christ. And we pray, Lord, as we explore what it means to be comforted by You. Help us to be those believers that can comfort one another, just as Your Word declares. 
Father, bless the preaching and teaching of your word. Bless our time together. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I've entitled um, this uh, whole passage here really a series of studies. We're only going to be looking at part one of what I've called the God of comfort in a world of pain. That's really what we have before us in verses 3 to 11. And each section that we're going to look at really is going to clarify or magnify for us a different aspect of that reality, that we do have a God of comfort, but we also live in a world of pain. And we can identify with both things. What I want to look at today is how the comfort of God brings joy to the believer. How the comfort of God brings joy to the believer. And the very first thing that I want to point out is that the reason why God's comfort produces in us joy is because the comfort of God is an occasion for doxology. Look at verse 3. Matter of fact, that's the way this whole section begins. It begins with what people call a doxology or a eulogy. It comes from the Greek word eulogetos, where we get the word eulogy. And the way that it's constructed is that it magnifies something of the character of God. Listen to Paul's words. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You see that? So that he's not just pronouncing a blessing, espousing the blessedness of God, but that he also engages in telling us something of the very character and nature of God himself right here in the midst of this context. It's an amazing way to open a letter, isn't it? Paul often opens his letters with doxological statements like this. You remember Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, right? And he goes on to expound what that is. And so what Paul is doing here is he's calling down blessing upon God. And there's another way that you can take this. It is not so much that Paul is simply saying God needs to be blessed. We ought to bless God. That's right. That's true. But also that God is himself blessed. In other words, that the very character and the very nature of God is one of blessedness. That God lives in a state of blessing. His very being is a blessed being. His very existence is a blessed, happy, joyful, exuberant existence. That is the existence of God. It is a blessed existence. That's why He is to be blessed. You see the reciprocal nature of this blessing. God is blessed, therefore we should bless Him. We should bless Him because God is blessed. And that's the way that Paul means for us to take it. Also, I want you to see the distinctly Christian nature of this doxology. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why that's important is because doxological statements like this were not rare in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, we have evidence of synagogue liturgy from the first century that contained blessings that were very, very similar to this one. Matter of fact, Murray Harris in his commentary actually quotes one that said this, speaking of Yahweh, the merciful and compassionate Father. Well, that's a very close parallel to what we have here. But only the difference is that Paul is careful to distinguish this as an exclusively Christian doxology, a Christian blessing. In other words, it's a blessing that a Jew who is not in Christ cannot utter. He cannot utter a blessing about Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Oftentimes when I meet Jewish people, I say, Baruch Hashem. And they go, oh, Baruch Hashem Adonai. And I say, yes, Baruch Hashem Adonai, Yeshua HaMashiach. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Jesus the Messiah, they can't go along with. And it just got me thinking, do we bless? Do we pray in such a way? Do we worship in such a way? Is our blessing and worship of God, is our prayer so saturated in a Christ-centered way that the unbelieving Jew, the unbelieving Muslim, the unbelieving Mormon can't pray with us. 
because we have so distinguished our prayer as an exclusively Christian thing that you must be in Christ to bless Christ this way. It's an amazing thing. This sort of blessing is replete all over the Word of God. Psalm 72 speaks of this blessedness, again, just sort of kind of surrounding the person and nature of God Himself. Bless, it says in Psalm 72, 19, Blessed be His glorious name forever. Because His name is so glorious, we, it, it commands praise. It demands blessing. Again, Psalm, Psalm 89, 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. God is to be eternally blessed for who He is. He is blessed forevermore. Paul says that very thing. 2 Corinthians 11.31, he says that very same thing in a very close parallel when he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. You see that? He is blessed forever. The doxology is also, we could say, an expression of thanksgiving. You know how many times the Apostle Paul opens up one of his letters with thanksgiving, right? We give thanks to God. Eucharisto. I thank God, Paul says. Over and over in his letters, he was thankful to God. Well, this doxology, in essence, functions in that way. It functions to give thanks to God, not just for who He is, but even further than that, for what He has done. Blessing God. My friends, let me tell you something. When you begin your prayers that way, when you begin your prayers, first of all, by acknowledging who God is and what He has done, it will transform our prayers. I heard a little bit of it in our prayer meeting today. Just talking about who God is, what He has done. It enlivens, it vivifies our prayer life the way that it should. But now notice... Paul, he sort of begins this whole section here by being to us an example. An example of a person that understands the comfort and the blessings and the consolation and the encouragement that is in God, that is in Christ or through Christ, so that we would emulate Him in this. I tell you what, if you've not done a study uh, about the principle of imitation, you should. Because as I was teaching through the book of Philippians, I was struck by just how explicit Paul is. For example, in the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, Paul makes this incredible statement. He says, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, that is, in my example, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What an incredible, encouraging promise that as we seek to emulate the Apostle Paul, like he says, follow me as I follow Christ, as we seek to pattern our life after what we see and hear and receive in Paul, in his life and in his writings, we have the blessed assurance, we have the blessed promise that the God of peace will be with us. Don't you want the God of peace to be with you? Don't you want to experience the tranquility of God? There is so much chaos in this world already. There's so much uneasiness. There's so much uneasiness all around our lives, in our hearts, in our own emotional makeup, in our own psyche, in our own circumstances. There's so much turbulence. Who doesn't want the God of peace to be with us? I certainly do. And so Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at my example. Look at the way I live my life. And then do the things that you are able to follow me in. Right? Not the things that you can't follow me in. We're not apostles. We can't write scripture. We're not apostles. We're not going to go raise the dead. We're not apostles. We can't command authoritatively uh, things to the churches. But the things that we can do are very, very many in number. We can imitate Paul in his zeal for illustrating the glory of God. We can imitate Paul in his zeal for evangelism and spreading the gospel. We can imitate Paul in his zeal for the purity of the church. We can imitate Paul in his zeal for prayer and holy living. 
All of these principles are ours for the taking. And as we take them, we can be encouraged by them. And so what Paul is doing here is he's setting himself out sort of as a paradigm, as a he is the prototype of what it means to live out this verse right here, to encourage others with the same comfort with which you have been comforted. And Paul does this as we reflect on his life, his ministry, the things that he had gone through. Boy, I tell you what, the Apostle Paul was not beyond the need of comfort. He needed to be comforted by Almighty God in His apostolic ministry. I mean, if you just look at the book of Acts, for example, and if you turn to Acts chapter 18, I'll be there in a second, but in Acts chapter 18, we get a, uh, we get a glimpse of how God encouraged Paul. But keeping in mind the chronology of the book of Acts, chapter 16, chapter 17, everything leading up to this one encouragement that we get in chapter 18. In chapter 16, the Apostle Paul experiences great uh, uh, opposition. The Jews opposed him. Uh, this is sort of the way the Apostle's life always worked, right? Some success and some opposition, right? Everywhere you see. He preaches, people get saved, some people mock. He preaches, some people get saved, sometimes he gets stoned. He preaches, some people get saved, sometimes he gets thrown in jail. I mean, this is the cycle of Paul's life, and he experiences it in uh, Acts chapter 16 and verse 19. He, he, he gets beaten, he gets thrown into prison, and in Berea, same thing. In Berea, there's a tumult, there's a crowd. In Acts chapter 17, verses 13 to 15, Paul is, is uh, surrounded by hostile people so that he has to flee to the sea. And who can forget his encounter at Mars Hill, right? The Areopagus. There he is before all the Stoic Epicurean philosophers, and he comes against great opposition, right? You would think that by the time that Paul arrives in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he is pretty discouraged. You go through what Paul went through in Acts 16 and 17, and let's see if you don't need a little encouragement. He was probably depressed. He's an apostle after all, but yet everywhere he goes, like he says in Acts chapter 20, oh, the Spirit testifies. Listen, this is, a, listen, this is no surprise to him. God, through his spirit, had already assured him that wherever he went, chains and imprisonments and tribulations, all those afflictions, they await him. But listen to how God meets Paul. Acts 18.9. He says, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, He says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. It was the very fact of election that God had His chosen people in, every, in, in the city that He was going to that He could rest assured that no one would ultimately harm Him, but that He would do the ministry God had called Him to do. Paul will talk more about his personal affliction in verses 8 through 10 and uh, the seeming anxiety, he, oh, he seems overcome when he talks about his trial at Troas and Macedonia there because of a failure of communication between him and Titus and what was going on with the Corinthian church. He was overwhelmed with grief and anxiety. You ever been anxious? Some of you suffer from anxiety attacks, I know. Some of you have gone to the hospital because you've been overwhelmed with an anxiety attack. I can tell you one thing for certain. The Apostle Paul was constantly bombarded with anxieties in the ministry. Constantly bombarded with anxieties. But now also I want to go back to this doxology. In the doxology, we also see that it is exhaustive because it, is, it assigns to, to God a quality where it exhausts, if you would, the comfort of God. It is exhaustive in the sense that He is called the God of all comfort. All comfort comes from God. In every trial, in every moment, in every test, every comfort that you have, in every situation is a comfort that has been given to you by God. Every relief, every moment of mitigation of any kind of pain or suffering, my friends, has been given to you by the hand of a merciful God who is here called the Father of mercies. 
The mercies of God are the children of God. They are at His service. The mercies of God do as God commands. He sends forth God's, God sends forth His mercies to minister to us. And He is also the God of all comfort. So amazing. So amazing. But God has a litany of mercy. He has a legacy of showing mercy and compassion to His people. All along, you remember Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, where God, talking about His covenant faithfulness, says that He keeps covenant with His people. In uh, Psalm 89, verse 28, the psalmist says, My loving kindness, which is that so significant term, hesed, the hesed of God, which is the covenant faithfulness of God, the covenant love of God, we could say, is the God that He constantly keeps for His people. It says, my, coven- my loving kindness I will keep for Him, that is, for David, and my covenant I will confirm to Him. You see that? God's merciful dealings with His people. He's always shown mercy. And we see His mercy emerge time and time again in all sorts of different circumstances and, and, in, and attached to all sorts of different things. It is by the mercy of God that our minds are being renewed, that we are being sanctified, according to Romans 12.1. It is by the mercy of God, according to Peter, in Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been born again because of the mercies of God. God was so merciful that it says He caused you to be born again. It was the mercy of God that motivated Him to cause new life to spring up in your heart. It was, he was motivated by the very mercies that are His by nature. And Paul, likewise, he credits the mercies of God to our regeneration and to our union with Christ. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he says, But God being so rich in mercy. You see that? That's how He's the Father of mercies. He's rich with mercy. Filled with mercy. Mercy is His with exhaustive abundance. So is comfort. Because, as He says, of His great love with which He loved us, He made us alive. There is the expression of His love and mercy. How do we know He is merciful and loving toward me so that you and I never have to doubt the mercy and love of God in our lives? Ever, ever, ever. Because He made us alive together with Him. He united us to Christ. Oh, it's so beautiful. Beautiful. Union with Christ displays the mercy of God in ways that nothing else does. Think about Paul when he's talking about God's sovereign grace and His mercy. It's an occasion, as he goes on to say, both for Jews and for Gentiles to praise and to glorify God. No wonder Paul is praising, glorifying God in this doxology because of the mercy of God. Listen to what he says, Romans fifteen eight. For I say to you that Christ has become a servant. Then he lists different benefits for the Jews and to the Gentiles as well. For what purpose? So that they might glorify God and His mercy. You see that? That is why... Christ served His people so that it may result in due praise and due worship. This is, a, this is the legacy of God's mercy. Paul is simply wanting to give credit where credit is due. And Paul experiences God's mercy and God's presence over and over and over again in his life. And I know that in this room how many of us could stand to testify of how often God in a certain trial or in a particular circumstance that we knew that God was with us, that God was with us. Paul interpreted the mercy and the comfort of God as God's own special empowering presence being there with him, right in the midst of the fire with him, right in the furnace of affliction. God was right there with him in his own trial. Let me just give you one scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses uh, 16 through 17. 2 Timothy 4, 16, as Paul is thinking about his imprisonment and all that he went through, 
Paul was in prison several times, but in this present circumstance, he speaks about God being with him there. He says in verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me. Apparently all had abandoned Paul. Apparently no one was there for his first of one of his many defenses of the gospel, his initial defense, as many scholars think, is known as kind of like an initial hearing. But his initial hearing, there was no one there. But everyone deserted me, he says. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth probably a reference to Nero. So you can see there that Paul, so acquainted with the comforting presence of God that it led him to doxology, to exult in the pres- in the, in the, uh, for the mercies and the comfort that God had given him. The second thing is this. It produces joy in our lives because of the comfort that we have in our affliction. And let me just try to draw out the comfort of affliction and what I mean by that. But notice verse 5 of that first part. Before we get to what we're supposed to do to one another, let's, let's just sort of feel the full weight of what it's saying about us. He says, who comforts us in all our affliction. This is written very specifically. This is written in such a way that Paul is being very intentional by the way he's constructing this. But, he's, but in a general sense, Paul is just simply asserting that we can expect in all of our trials the comfort of God. The beauty of this, my friends, is that it extends the mercy of God not just to Paul, not just to the Corinthians, not just to the apostles, but to every believer, I believe. He comforts us in all of our affliction, all of our affliction. The Father of mercies, the God of comfort, comforting His people. Whatever affliction you might go through, He is there to bless us. Once again, just jump down to verse 18 so that you can see how Paul, again, is an example of this for us. He says, for we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we would despair even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. He says, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. Now, we'll see more and more about Paul's actual trial here. But here, the only point here is that Paul, he'd been comforted by God, and, and during a specific trial, again, it was cause for great joy. And as we'll see, the specific trials of Paul meant that he can comfort us in all trials. You go through one major trial, isn't this the Christian experience? You go through one devastating trial in your life, and now you are equipped to minister to the needs of God's people, regardless what trial they're going through, Right? you really suffered before? Have you really gone through a a, a trial that is burdensome and heavy and demanded everything out of you, all the endurance that you could muster up? I tell you, when you go through trials, when you go through the furnace of affliction in that way, and you come out, as James says, tested, you pass the test, you are approved of God, you bore up under the trial, So now you are better qualified, my friends, to comfort one another. You know that enduring through a trial with joy, enduring through a trial with faith, because it's one thing to go through a trial, but it's another thing how you go through the trial. People can go through trials and remain bitter. Yeah, they survived, but they're embittered at God, or they came out with bitter taste in their mouth, or... I meet people like this all the time. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've endured. And there, there remains in their mind a lingering atheism, a lingering doubting, a casting a doubt on the very character and nature of God. But Paul wants to remind us that we are afflicted when we are afflicted by the hand of a merciful and all-comforting God. So that every trial that God designs to come into your life, and trust me, every trial that's come into your life is divinely designed by God Himself. 
God is, as A.W. Pink said, sovereign over all, or he would not be sovereign at all. After all, it was God at the end of the book of Job that is credited for bringing all of the adversity on Job that he had gone through, right? God obviously had a plan in it. But listen to what James says. Because not only is endurance the will of God for His people, it's also the sure sign of a blessing. He says, we count those blessed to endure, James 5.11. We count those blessed to endure. We reckon them blessed. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings with him, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Isn't that beautiful? Keeping with this analogy of Job, Spurgeon preached a message, a sermon on uh, a text in Job, Job 27.2, called The Vexed Soul Comforted. The Vexed Soul Comforted. Where Job says in, in, in Job 27.2 that it was the Almighty who had embittered my soul. But he doesn't say that to bring a charge against God. He says it so that he can comfort himself with the fact that it was God, the sovereign God, the all-comforting God, the Almighty God, in other words, the God that is able to both bring the affliction and lift it from you. Job comforted himself with that concept that God is sovereign over my trial and that He is sovereign over my relief. He is sovereign over my affliction and He is sovereign over the blessedness that comes from His healing touch. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He encourages the reader to the same perseverance that James does. He says, He is truly a brave man who will say with Job, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Let God deal with me as He wills. Yet He is good. And I will praise His name. What if He has vexed my soul? He has the right to vex it. So I will not kick against the pricks. Let Him grieve me. Let Him put gall and wormwood into my cup if if it so shall please Him. But still, I will magnify His name. For He is good and He is only good. He says... Here is the strength of the saints. Where is the glory? Uh, here is the strength of the saints, and here is the glory which God gets out of true believers that they cannot and will not be soured against their God. That is the faithfulness of a believer, of a true believer. That is the true glory of a Christian. That unlike the world, when they go through things, as the parable of the sower so easily illustrates, they will not fall away because of trials. They don't allow the word to be choked out. They won't allow the devil to come and snatch out the seed. No, but a true believer will endure and he will not be soured against his God. How can you praise when God is just a sour note to you? You can't, or your praise will be perfunctory, since all of you know what perfunctory means. It will be false. It will be a sham. It will be, a, a, it will be an act. It will be disingenuous. It won't be real. Only when there is truly a, a sweet savor for the merciful character of God can you truly praise in the midst of affliction like this so that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 18.1, I love you, O Lord. My strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. And I tell you, sometimes it is those particular trials that will excrete out of you a particular fragrance of praise. Isn't that true? I mean, just the other day, I was on the phone with an old friend of mine who, whom I love very dearly. He's the kind of guy that can make you laugh over and over again. And just, you know, one of those guys that are just so, they're just born funny. You can't take them seriously even if you try. They're just so funny. I love this guy. His name is Mike Mills. And he came down with stage four cancer, Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. And I talked to him on the phone and 
I always like to hear when people like this, right? And people are in a trial. You can learn so much, right, if you have an ear to hear. And he said, brother, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how I've been experiencing God in these days. How God has come to me in ways that I could never imagine when when death is staring me right in the face. Well, isn't that the context that we're in here? We despaired even of life. The sentence of death was upon us. And so Paul, like Mike Mills, is particularly qualified to encourage us to, 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 to spur us on to see the comfort and the mercies of God. And so the last point is this. Not only in the, uh, not only in the, the comfort that we have in the affliction, but then now the, 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 the capacity that we have as Christians or Christian compassion and sympathy That's why these trials can produce joy. That's why these trials can produce a blessedness in His people because we are now capable of compassion and sympathy ourselves. Look at verses 4 and 5 or the end, the second part there of verse 4. He says, So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. It's amazing. I alluded earlier to the fact that there is sort of a specific trial, and then that sort of spills over into a general trial, right? The grammar bears that out as well. When Paul says in verse 4 that he comforts us in all of our affliction, that word there has the definite article. In other words, he's being specific or intentional. He probably has a specific trial in mind, probably referring to verses 8 and 10 through 10. And then he broadens it up. He broadens it up. He takes away the definite article and he uses the word all, any, every. So that now we can comfort people in any affliction, even if it doesn't look exactly like ours. We have that capacity now to relate. We can relate. What a beautiful it is. What a beautiful thing it is to be able to relate with one another in the, in, the, in the times where the darkest moments of our life. I think of the Apostle Paul. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you struggle with depression. I don't know if you struggle with that. Paul did, or at least one time he got depressed. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 7, 5, listen to what he says. For we, for, for even, excuse me, for, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, and we were afflicted on every side. And look at how he describes this trial. Conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed. The word depressed speaks about a person being brought to the point where he can almost not cope any longer. You're at the very precipice of what you're able to bear, right? And that's what Paul is saying when, when God and His mysterious providence brings you to the, to the very cliff of yourself. He brings you to the very edge of your, your trial is, is, is pressing down upon you with every bit of pressure it can muster because that's what, what the word affliction means. The word affliction simply means pressure, pressing. That's what trials do, right? They press us. They press our head, our mind, our heart, our circumstances. They press our finances. They press our marriages. They press our our families. They press our church. They press the ministry. Afflictions have a refining character to them. And when we're brought to that point, Paul says, God comforts those that are on the brink, those that are depressed, those that are downcast, those that have been brought to the end of themselves, God is there to meet us. Not psychology, not a pill, right? Not any 12-step program. It is God. And so what God aims for us to do is to seek Him in our, in our hour of trial, to press in. I tell you what, when you're afflicted, when you're downcast, when, you're being, when, when things are against you, the very first thing that props into your mind is, see, if I wouldn't have tried to be so spiritual, this affliction wouldn't have come. 
You see, that's what I get for trying to live a life pleasing to God. These are the sermons that Satan will preach to your mind. So you're better off just kind of letting off a little bit, right? Don't get so spiritual. Don't get so, so zealous. Don't get so serious about God. See what happens to you when you try to live a life of holiness. See what happens to you when you try to serve in the church, when you try to be faithful, when you try to do the right thing. See what happens with, when you try to fellowship with God's people. Oh, that is a twisted word. That's, a, that's, a, that's not proper exegesis that the, that the devil is doing there. That is pure eisegesis. That's pure Scripture twisting, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you don't preach to yourself... Satan will preach to you. You better be preaching to yourself all the time or else the devil will preach his erroneous sermons like he told Eve. Hath God really said that He is a God of all comfort? Has He really said He has a comfort in every affliction? No, my friends. Trials are not designed by God to cause you to cast doubt on the Word of God. Trials are designed by God, yes they are, in order to condition you to press into God. That's what they're there for. I want you to see that for, for Paul too, the trials that he has in mind are not just the trials that anyone can experience so that anyone can simply get this type of comfort, this sort of rest, this sort of tranquility and peace. No, no, no! The world has no capacity to indulge in this sort of compassion and comfort and peace and encouragement. It is only the Christian, because if you notice, he draws out the Christ-centered nature of Christian experience here when he says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also Our comfort is abundant through Christ. See that? Christ, Christ, Christ. It's all through, it's all in, it's all from. Everything is going from Christ, through Christ, back to Christ. It's all Christ-centered. That's what it means to be Christ-centered. Christocentric. That's what it's all about. And it's by virtue, brothers and sisters, of our association, our relationship to Christ, that we will experience both the sufferings of Christ and the comfort that comes through Christ. Praise God. It's because of our union with Christ that we are made to suffer for Christ or suffer like Christ or suffer at the hand of Christ. If you look at the text very carefully, he says here that for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours, that's not really what the Greek text says. The word is a prepositional phrase. It means into us. It's a purpose clause, which means for us. Sometimes the sufferings of Christ are for us. And here he says the sufferings of Christ are for us in abundance, right? Paul was so aware of this. He knew that in his body he was filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, Uh, This is just another way then to say that sometimes it is the will of God, it is by the will of God that suffering comes into your life for a specific purpose. Scripture says don't suffer for foolishness, don't suffer for your own sin and your own mistakes. That's not the suffering he has intended here, but he's talking about the suffering that God brings upon the righteous for no no other reason other than that they're righteous. It's amazing. Uh, for example, Peter is a great example to us in this. First Peter, the letter of First Peter is all about trials and suffering and endurance, perseverance. Listen to these texts by Peter. He says in First Peter 3.17, For it is better if God should will it, He does will it, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. First uh, Peter 4.19, he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. That puts the matter beyond dispute. You suffer according to the will of God. You shall entrust your souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That's exactly what Paul was doing. 
He was doing what is right, and he was suffering according to the will of God, and he was instead of slipping into atheism or slipping into cynicism or slipping into sarcasm or slipping into unbelief, instead of doing that, he resigned himself to the faithfulness of God. He simply resigned himself to the sovereign hand of God to, in, in an acknowledgement that God who is the creator of everything, is totally and perfectly in control of my life. He said, in other words, with the psalmist, in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. You have afflicted We can't escape trials, right? No matter how hard we try. I don't know about you, but I love to maximize my comfort. I'll just be really honest with you. I get in the car, I put the seat just right, you know. It's an older car, but it still has powered seats, so I can, so zzz, zzz. here I am trying to get as perfectly comfortable as I can. I turn on the AC, I get home, I set it right to the right thing. My wife and I are always fighting back and forth, too hot, too cold. I want it just right. I'll be honest with you, I love my comfort. But the reality is, is that trials are inescapable. It's not when, it's not if you're going to suffer, it's when you're going to suffer. Listen to me, young people in here. You're full of joy, you're full of life, you're full of playing, right? You know, sometimes your playing leads to suffering. You're running and bam, right? You're suffering. So you know, life is not just about playing. It's not all pleasant. It's not all pleasurable. There is suffering in this world because of sin. Because of sin, death entered the world Because of sin, decay is in the world. Because of sin, as Paul says in Romans, death is reigning. Death is reigning. And we see the effects of sin all around us. Paul told the Christians in Derby, he said that, and he strengthened, he strengthened, he encouraged the Christians with this word. Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You see that? Don't lose faith when you're afflicted. Don't lose faith when you're discouraged. Don't lose faith when you're in some just unspeakable, inexplainable, irrational, insane trial. Don't lose faith. Continue in the faith. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Calvin said, the sanctification process is a lifelong agonizing process. Agonizing. But here's the beauty. We don't just experience sufferings in Christ, but we also experience the comfort that Christ provides, that comes through Him. There is a corresponding comfort. Listen to this, my friends. There is a corresponding comfort to every trial that God designs for you. Every trial. Suffering is never without joy. Ever, ever, ever for the Christian. Suffering is never without joy. Joy will never be absent from suffering. Joy will always complete suffering for the Christian. It doesn't matter if it's a temporal joy. It doesn't matter if it's the joy that we experience here and now in this world or the joy that will come from our eschatological hope in future glory. I have another friend. Her name was Monique. She had cystic fibrosis. She died, I think, at the age of 34. 34. She had a lung transplant, just like the doctor said they could do. They told her you'd get about five more years. She got about five more years and did incredible things. She ran marathons. She got married. She went on cruises. She served in the church. But you know what? There came that moment in time where those lungs no longer produced joy in this world. Her joy had to be like Paul's joy, fixed on God who raises the dead. You must have an eschatological joy. The world knows nothing about this joy. The world knows nothing about future joy and future glory. They only have the little bit of joy they have here and now. That's why the demonic, inconceivable, 
twisted message that comes from so many preachers today. Your best life now is so false. Your best life is not now, my friends. As a matter of fact, this is as worse as your life will ever, ever, ever get. Whatever you go through in this world, it's the worst that it will ever get. You have set before you such an inheritance of joy, eternal bliss, eternal joy. And I just thought, I was reading Revelation last night. I was reading Revelation 21, where it says that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And I just started little by little, just fathoming what that meant. There's so many tears that could be wept at the end of the age. Looking back at a history of suffering, atrocities, catastrophes, genocides, you name it, rapes, murders, infant deaths, disease, oh, you name it. There will be so much weeping at the end of the age. God will wipe every tear from our eyes because in heaven, weeping is not the best emotion. Joy is. Let's pray. Father, where else can we get such an eternal joy but through the Lord Jesus Christ? We are so grateful. We are so confident. We are so humbled. Why us? Why would you choose us for such blissful, unspeakable joy, full of glory? All we can do, Lord, is simply say thank you, praise you. Like Paul, let us burst forth in doxology. You are so worthy. You are so, um, Father, you are so due the praise of our lips. We can't praise you enough. We love you. We love the Lord Jesus Christ today. For those of, for anyone here that doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are accursed. We don't want you to be cursed. We want you to be saved. We want you to be blessed. And so, Father, would you do your work of regeneration? Would you bring new life? Whoever listens to this audio, Whoever thinks upon these truths, we pray that you would use the seed of regeneration, your word, to bring about regeneration in the life that you give. We bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for a closing song together.